welcome everyone to another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. Today, got two great guests coming up for you. Sitting down first with us, we've got Cody Felger from the Bring the Juice Podcast, covering all things Indianapolis Colts. So we're going to break down all the injuries they've had in training camp, what to expect out of Carson Wentz in his first year in Indy what the health of some of their main starters and building blocks that they're going to be focusing on this year as well too is and some breakout candidates on both sides of the football so some names that you might not be talking about right now but come end of season or maybe even mid-season will be on either your fantasy football radars or even real life radars as impactful contributors at the nfl level Then we've got John Haim, who is the president of New Edge Performance. He's a human performance coach, and he has worked with athletes of all shapes and sizes across a wide variety of sports, age groups, genders, everything you can think of. He's got several books out as well, too. So we're going to break down the mental side of sports and athletics. So some very cool insights from him as to the mental side of things and what really separates those who are at the peak of their powers in whether it's the executive world, the sports and athletics world world, whatever it is, how those 1% differences and those small things that you can really focus in on make a world of difference when you are talking about the very best of the best in the elite athletics world. So very cool interview with him. So lots to cover today. Up first, we've got Cody. Let's get right into it with our Indianapolis Colts preseason breakdown. host of the bring the juice pod which focuses on all things indianapolis we've got cody cody how are you doing tonight i'm good man thanks for having me really appreciate it anytime so lots to dissect so let's dive right into it here we're only a few short weeks away from the kickoff to the regular season so getting exciting but in colts land injuries were really starting to pile up for you guys in training camp to the point where you know, it was looking like the season could almost be getting derailed before it got started. Now, had some better news. It doesn't look like Wentz is going to be missing 12 weeks of the season like it was initially reported. Some of the other guys are starting to get a little bit healthier. What's just the latest on some of the Colts players who have been injured in preseason or training camp and sort of their timetables to return like a Wentz or like a Nelson? Well, I'll say this, that this week has probably been the best news all training camp for injuries. I mean, getting Wentz back was huge. And it's funny because looking at him in his first couple of practices, you wouldn't think this guy had surgery three weeks ago on his foot. I mean, he was cutting and not just like gingerly, like he was hardcore cutting and running. And, and that's just something that's a little bit surprising. And I think even the coaches were shocked at how well Wentz looked and how quickly he came back. I mean, he wasn't supposed to come back this week. He was supposed to come back next week. And even then, I don't think they thought he was going to look as good as he has. So from that front, certainly uh, great positive news. I mean, three weeks out for the season, I think in my mind, I was kind of 50-50 on Wentz before that. Now I'm pretty confident he's going to be out there week one. And, you know, Quentin Nelson, the same deal. I mean, both these guys haven't been in the the full on 11-on-11s, you know, yet. They've held him out. They've been on more seven-on-sevens, but – you know, just certainly getting both these guys back, you know, the, the timetable for them was so like weird. It was like five to 12 weeks. That's such a broad <laughs> timeline. And so, yeah, getting them back three weeks um, was huge. It's huge for, and nobody expected it, which was crazy. And then they also got Ryan Kelly back. So it certainly seems like 
the Colts are getting healthy at the right time, right before the season starts. So, yeah, a little bit freaking out beforehand. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of eyes were on, the, and I'm sure we'll get to it, the backup quarterback if Wentz wasn't able to go. But, yeah, all are, all signs are looking good for the where the Colts are right now. It seems like they're getting finally healthy for the first time really since they started camp. Yeah. And I was going to say, hopefully you guys have gotten most of your injuries out of the way with already. and You don't have to worry about it in midseason, but mm-hmm. you just touched on it. Obviously for a while there, it, the question was who even is going to be under center come week one. So out of the two options that you guys had in house, who looked more impressive or were you sort of holding out hope for would be the week one signal caller? Yeah. I mean, if Wentz wasn't able to go, I was always pro team Jacob Eason, just because I felt like, you know, nothing against Sam Ellinger. He seems like a great guy. He seems like a, a leader, but Jacob Eason just has it. You know, he just has the arm strength. He's, he's got the chance to get those big league throws the, you know, that unfortunately with Sam Ellinger, he just can't make. And it, I'm not talking about, you know, throwing 80 yards on your knees, like Jamarcus Russell type of thing, but he just can fit the ball in, you know, places that a lot of quarterbacks can't. When we saw that a little bit in week one against the Carolina Panthers, he had a nice throw to Paris Campbell, looked really, really sharp in that game. And uh, he had a little bit of a rougher game in week number two, but I thought he had a nice bounce back second half. He's had a couple, like he had a rough practice on Monday, but he bounced back again. So I think for me, it's Jacob Eason. I mean, he's also taking care of the football, which is compared to Sam Ellinger, which is interesting because a lot of people said Sam Ellinger's pros are he can run the ball, he can take care of the ball, and he's thrown three picks in two games. So so you, you can debate all you want whether or not they're all his fault. I don't think they are necessarily, but Eason hasn't thrown an interception yet, and he's also just looked so much better, you know, and in terms of he can actually push the ball down the field. He can actually make the throws. So for me, it's always been Jacob Eason. I'll probably always be on the – one eye towards the future type of thing. You know, the, the, the guy who I think has the biggest and the highest ceiling, but I also acknowledge, I think Jacob Eason probably has a lower floor as well, but yeah, if you're making me go out tomorrow between those two guys, I'm probably going to stick with Eason. And I personally feel like he's been the better quarterback so far. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I'm an Oklahoma fan in college football, so I was never a big Ellinger fan to begin with there out of Texas. So I was probably leaning towards Eason as well too, but it's been kind of a mixed bag at the quarterback position really since Andrew Luck retired in Indianapolis with Wentz now hoping at least in Indy to be that next guy for the foreseeable future like what kinds of changes on offense do you see Indianapolis implementing this year as opposed to the Jacoby Brissett and Philip Rivers errors that we saw in recent years yeah, I mean, I think Wentz just offers, honestly, the closest thing to Andrew Luck in terms of this type of style he likes to play with, right? He can he can make all the throws. He, he can do all these things. And not that the other guys couldn't, but, I mean, Jacoby Brissett either wouldn't or whatever it was with Jacoby. He had the arm. He just – he took, he was safe a lot of times, right? And and with Phillip Rivers, he was very immobile. I mean, he was nearly 40, so, I mean, that's not coming out of shock also dealing with a foot injury. So I think in terms of the Colts offense this year, I think certainly there's a lot more they can do, design quarterback runs, stuff like that, um, to kind of mix it up a little bit and be a lot less predictable this year. Like we all knew Philip Rivers wasn't going to sneak the football. <laughs> like we knew that. But but Wentz offers something so different and so unique in that way. And I think the RPO game as well, he can really help with that. He can also move, which obviously – 
the Colts haven't really had that. You know, he can move better than even Jacoby could a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I think overall just opens your offense up to be a lot less predictable and also can make a lot more of those deep vertical throws that I think the Colts were kind of lacking last year. I know the stats will kind of indicate that they were pretty good last year, but also I felt like they they just needed some more. Like I even looked at that Buffalo game, the playoff game, and I was like, man, the Colts just need something more. They just need a little bit more of a threat to kind of take it and run with it when need be and push the ball down the field. And Wentz certainly is able to do that. So, yeah, I think this just opens your offense up so much more than you've had the past couple of years. Yeah, and obviously when you have a capable quarterback under center, obviously helps with the trickle-down effect to the wide receivers. And Colts Mm -hmm. have three really intriguing young players that – could be ready to take that next step in their development out of Michael Pittman Jr., Zach Pascal, Paris Campbell. Like, who are you most bullish on to have sort of that breakout year this season? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think Pascal is always just going to be – he doesn't get the credit he deserves, but he's just so consistent. I don't envision him just having a, you know, breakout year in terms of your, I think if I'm looking to somebody, it's probably Pittman. Mm-hmm. So I felt like he looked really strong in a couple games last year. He dealt with some inconsistencies, but that Buffalo game, he looked really darn good. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking to him and Paris Campbell. I love Paris Campbell. I think if he can stay healthy, he's, he's a mismatch, man. Nobody can, can keep up with him from a, from a speed standpoint and also a size standpoint. And a lot of people think that Paris Campbell's small. No, he's six foot, nearly 215. Like he's a big wide receiver for that kind of speed. So I think if I'm choosing probably Pittman, I think he has the best chance to be the Colts wide receiver number one. And I think he will, you know, if all goes well this year, he's trending in that direction. But I would say this, just don't sleep on Paris Campbell because he could be the secret weapon that the Colts have that could really take their offense to the next level. Continuing with our theme of offense here, obviously expectations and even from, you know, a fantasy football standpoint, Jonathan Taylor getting a lot of love preseason and high expectations going into this year. Now, whether it's a current player in the NFL or even past player, like who does his running style sort of remind you of? And like, what's a realistic projection for him in 2021? Yeah, um, man, I've seen a couple different comparisons um, and I'm totally blanking on it right now. Um, but I, I love, um, I'll just say this, um, his sheer power and speed combination. I mean, you don't see that in a back that's nearly 230, right? Um, so I think the expectations should really be uh, high, but also understanding that the Colts like that running back by committee, which fantasy people don't like to hear that. But as a fan, I like to hear that because that means he's going to be fresher for the playoffs. I mean, I think if Marlon Mack can fully be back, um, I, I see Taylor being the lead guy, but I think Mack could kind of cut into his production a little bit. So I'm always telling people, people I feel like are drafting Taylor really high, which I'm, I'm loving that he's getting that love, but also realizing that he was the guy last year. Like Mac wasn't, he was out. Right. So if Mac can get back to where he was, I could see him maybe cutting a little bit to Jonathan Taylor, uh, his production a little bit. I honestly could see that. Yeah. And as far as either a change of pace back or even third down pass catching back, like who are you seeing really emerging this year and taking hold of that role? If everyone obviously stays healthy, there is it Mac, is it Hines? Is it someone else? Like what, what are you seeing playing out? Yeah, I think it's definitely Hines. He, he's been really, really good. That's his forte, honestly, is that catching out of the backfield. and just. I, mean, I saw today, I was actually down at Colts 
training camp today and, and Carson Wentz hit him for on a wheel route and, and he was just wide open. So I think Hines is the guy there, the perceived um, receiving back. But I'll say this, the great thing about all these Colts backs, even Jordan Wilkins, they all can catch the football. Like none of these guys are just terrible at catching the ball. They're all really good at it. So I think the Colts are going to use all these guys in their passing game. But I think if you're making a primary guy, it's Hines. Cause he'd actually funny enough led the Colts in receptions last year, like yeah. as a team, not just in running backs as a team. So he's certainly a mismatch. Hopefully the, I, I really hope the Colts use him in a slot a lot more this year. So I think he's definitely presents a real big problem to a lot of these guys. Uh, he's, he's so fast. He was the fastest running back coming out. I believe that 2018 draft. So the Colts have added a lot of speed in their offense. And I think that's going to definitely uh, go to their advantage and <laughs> defenses are going to be gassed. I'm just going to say that. Speaking of defenses, we've given the offense lots of time here. Let's give a little bit of a spotlight to the boys on the other side of the ball. And Colts top draft pick, Quiddy Pay, obviously has some big shoes to fill as far as some of the departing players from that defensive line. Is he a day one plug and play starter? Or do you think he's going to get eased into action this year? From what I've seen, he's going to be your starter at one defensive end. Mm-hmm. He he's looked great. Um, he obviously has things he has to work on. He was kind of raw coming out of Michigan. The big knock on him was he doesn't have a counter move, right? He has a nice initial move, but the counter moves kind of where he's been working on. And it seems like the Colts obviously have identified that and he's been really working on that. I mean, he got his first career sack in week two and, yeah, I think he he's going to kind of be a, a trial by error kind of guy, right? He's going to be plugged in and played not as a perfect defensive end, but I think he's going to learn a ton just from that experience. So I think I'm really more intrigued in the other defensive end position. Who in the world is it going to be? I have a couple guys in mind, but yeah, as far as Quiddy Pay is concerned, he's kind of just one of those guys you're like, he's going to start. I mean, he's got to start. So I think he kind of provides a little bit of everything in, in terms of stopping the run and also against the pass as well. Yeah. Would you say he's been maybe the most impressive rookie either side of the ball in training camp thus far? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I haven't seen, and, and this obviously is without Dio Adangbo, who was their second round pick. He's not out there because he's still recovering from that Achilles. But yeah, from defense, yeah, he's definitely been the biggest guy. I mean, the, I'm trying to think who all the Colts had. They, they didn't have a ton of draft picks. This is probably their least amount of draft picks they've had since Ballard has been the GM. So, I mean, you got what Sean Davis, who was out of Florida, and then you really got Quiddy. So I think out of those two, Quiddy's definitely uh, made the most noise so far. Now, in 2020, you, you wouldn't necessarily think, okay, Phillip Rivers and his 10-yard dink and dunk throws that he was sort of running, that they would have a high-scoring offense, but they were actually 10th-ranked offense, 10th-ranked defense in 2020. So, If you had to look into the future and say that one of those two areas takes a step back this year, which Mm -hmm. do you think it is? Do you think they take a step backwards defensively or offensively this year? Well, I think if I'm choosing, I'm probably going to go defense just because the pass rush concerns me a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've addressed it and addressed it, but I'm still concerned about that pass rush because that was their biggest Achilles heel on defense, not from the interior, but more of their edge rush guys. They addressed it in the draft. They've addressed it in the draft, the last couple drafts, and it's still not to the place they want it to be. So, I mean, I feel like right now the pass rush is really going to make, you know, this defense either better than it was or worse than it was. And there's just a a lot less proven guys, I guess, this year than they had last year. I mean, they lost Houston and they also lost Autry, who are your two leading sackers on your defensive line besides DeForest Buckner. So, I mean, those are big losses. They really are. I I like Quiddy, but to expect a rookie to go out and get eight to 10 sacks, I think it's a little bit uh, 
I don't know, ambitious, I guess. So I'm going to say just slightly step back. I don't think they're going to have a massive drop off because I do think it's, it's good to have this unit with another year of cohesion. I mean, really they have a lot of their starters back from last year. The only difference is, you know, defensive end. And then really that's, that's about it. (laughs) Honestly, this unit is very, very cohesive. So I, I could see it going either way. But I just think with – and it really depends, obviously, if, if Wentz is healthy. If Wentz is healthy, I see this Colts offense just maybe being about the same, maybe a little bit better in certain areas. But, yeah, I would probably go defense if I'm choosing. Yeah, and not major injuries, but there were, again, some minor nicks and bruises to uh, both Leonard and DeForest Buckner there as well, too. Like, what's the update on them? Are they going to be good to go week one, or have they already even returned to training camp? Like, what did you see today? Yeah, they were both out there. They were ready to go. They're 100%. Leonard was, it was funny. Leonard, Leonard is so funny. You can hear him. We were like all the way up in the stands. And I was like, I hear Darius Leonard, but I don't see him. Where is he at? So he's ready to go. I think they'll both, they're both ready to go. Just, just more of the Colts being overly cautious. They've done that a lot in training camp. I feel like if week one's tomorrow, a lot of these guys who have been resting are probably playing. So, I mean, the Colts have three weeks out, so they don't have to rush these guys at all. They're just waiting for them to be 100%. But, yeah, DeForest Buckner and and Quentin Nelson actually went up against each other today on on seven-on-sevens, and uh, they both won a rep from what I saw. And, and, uh, yeah, DeForest Buckner continues to be absolutely dominant. Darius Leonard was in there as well. He's he's just Darius Leonard. He's always making plays. He's always talking. So, yeah, both those guys seem good to go, ready for week one. Beautiful. Now, if we look at it from a divisional standpoint here, all indications are that Houston's probably going to be the doormat of the division. Jacksonville, probably a developmental year, probably better than they did last year, but probably mm-hmm. a year or two away from realistically competing for a playoff spot. So it's really going to come down to you guys and the Titans. Now, for a team who it seems like always is vying for a playoff spot or coming in as a wild card, it's almost shocking to realize that Colts haven't won the division since 2014. So if they're hoping to change that this year, like what is the one key thing that they need to improve on from what they did in 2020, if they want to be raising a divisional banner when all is said and done? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It's hard to identify just one thing, but I would say this, just getting off to better starts. I mean, I feel like they've kind of at the beginning of the year, they, they, they haven't won an opening game, I believe since like 2014. So it's kind of been ridiculous at this point and they, they haven't won in Jacksonville. They, they need to get over that hump. There's, there's just a few like things that they haven't done in a long time. They just need to like, just do and stop feeding into that, you know, cause it's just like, Oh, we can't win in Jacksonville. We can't win week one. And it's just like, let's just stop doing that and let's actually do it and win. Um, so I think just getting over those things is something big. I already mentioned the pass rush, so I won't get back into that. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to the quarterback. It's got to come down to the quarterback. If Wentz can be, doesn't have to be 2017 Wentz. If he can be 2018 Wentz, right? If he can just do the things that he did and just be a good quarterback, I mean, I think this team certainly has all the pieces to be there and to really compete. Um, personally, if I'm choosing between the Colts and the Titans, if Wentz is good, I have the Colts as my favorite just because I feel like as a team from 1 to 53, they are a lot better than the Titans. Titans maybe have a lot more like explosion and flashiness, I guess, because they do have Julio, you know, they have AJ Brown, they have Derrick Henry, but their defense is nothing special at all. And the Colts actually have a legit potential last year, top 10 defense, right? Could potentially be even better. 
Um, we'll see on that. But but yeah, I mean, I think the Colts are a more well-rounded team, but I think the Titans have a little bit more star power on that offense, which is kind of, you know, it really comes down to your preference. What do you what do you think there? So yeah, it's really gonna hinge, I think, on those things for me. Yeah. And you just mentioned getting off to slow starts in the past years. Colts have a rough schedule of those first couple of weeks this year. So it's going to be a tall task for them to get off to even, you know, three and two start would probably be really good for them in their first five games based on who they've got on their schedule there. So what is that coming down to most? Is it coaching? Is it game planning? Like what is it? Why do you think they've been faltering right out of the gates in years past you just mentioned they haven't won an opening week since 2014 well that was the last time they won the division as well too and we're we're talking about seven years now for a team that's a pretty good ball club over the last five plus years yeah Yeah, I wish I had a direct answer on what it was I don't even know honestly it's just kind of been it's almost like you almost laugh at it at this point it's kind of like this is getting pathetic like come on guys Um, I do think there is, you know, it has to fall on the head coach somewhat, you know, as much as I love Frank Reich and I think he deserved that extension. I I also want to be critical of Frank. I've been critical of him in the past and I think he deserves that as well. Like if your team doesn't come out and win again in week number one, okay, what's the issue? Why is this happening? You know, and this is not just Frank, like this is, this was Chuck Pagano as well. The last coach, like what is going on? Is there some mental thing that we need to just get over? I I don't know what it is exactly, um, but yeah, I wish I had a direct answer because then I would go tell the Colts and we could figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they can bring you on as a consultant there and you get a six-figure <laughs> contract. So. so which Colts player, and maybe let's pick one on the offensive side of the ball and one on the defensive side of the ball. Which Colts player who's not getting a lot of media love right now do you think is going to take a real step forward this year? So someone who we're not talking about right now, but maybe yeah. by midseason, all of a sudden it's like, hey, so-and-so is having a really good year. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Paris Campbell. I think I got to stay there. And nobody talks about him. Everybody's written him off. I think he could look, you know, midway through the season, and be like, holy smokes, this guy's leading the Colts in receiving yards. Mm-hmm. Like, I really think he could do that. I think he deserves all that credit um, because he's a really good player when he's healthy. He looked really good in camp today, and he's continuing to look really good. And it's been kind of a freak thing with Paris. I mean, we, I mean, we year number one, it was more of, okay, he's not in football shape where he should be. He admitted as such. But really, we uh, year number two, it was just a freak thing that happened. Harrison Smith comes, hits his knee, and he's done. Mm-hmm. So for Paris, I think if he can just stay relatively healthy this year, he's going to be a guy that we're looking at and saying, wow, this guy is a really good receiver. So he's my offensive guy. Defensive guy, this is tougher for me to pick one. I'm going to go probably with Bobby Okariki at linebacker. Um, he's kind of been overshadowed by Darius Leonard and you know, don't talk about him a whole lot, but I thought he, his rookie season, he, I think he was voted as like one of the best rookies by PFF. So he had kind of a, eh, he, it was a good second year, but not quite the leap we were expecting. So I think now with Anthony Walker leaving in free agency, all right, it's Okariki's time to really be that Mike linebacker. And he's looked really, really good in camp. He's one of those athletic freak guys in that mold of, of the Darius Leonard's, you know, those type of guys, not as athletic, but he's really, really good in pass coverage as well. And, um, you, and I, I feel like his biggest knock is like, you just want to see him around the ball a little bit more. And I feel like in camp, at least he's been around the ball a lot. So I think Bobby Okariki is a really safe option there for a guy that you're like, wow, he's actually one of the better Mike linebackers in the league looking at it. 
All right. Well, one final question before we let you go here. Just got announced today that the Colts released their second kicker. So it's going to be Rex Specs. Rodrigo Blankenship is going to be their starting kicker again this year. Obviously, a bit of a quirky guy off the field. There's all sorts of tales and anecdotes of his love for Lego and stuff like that and whatnot. What's been your favorite Rodrigo Blankenship story that you've stumbled across since he's joined the Colts? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, that's a great question. He's just this sheer amount of Lego sets that this man has that a grown man has is just, it's incredible to me. I mean, I love Legos, but I mean, this man literally is like the Lego master, man. Like, I don't know how he does it. Um, I could not just sit there and that'd be so tedious to me to build something like that. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just absolutely love Rodrigo, man. I, I got to respect the specs. Like you said, I mean, I'm so glad that he wanted out. And honestly, it's crazy that he wanted out because Eddie Pinheiro was also perfect as well in camp and preseason. So I think it really pushed him to be a better kicker this year. I mean, I really do. Uh, he, he was good last year, but he also had some moments where you're like, how did you not make that? So, uh, but yeah, Rodrigo Blankenship. Um, I think he's one of the better kickers in the league personally. I know I might get some flack for that, but I mean, he, he broke the Colts scoring record last year as a rookie. <laughs> so I mean, I, I think this guy has all the potential in the world. He, there was so much buzz from him last year when he signed with the Colts. Everybody's like, loves him, apparently. And I found that out really quickly. A lot of Georgia people love him. And I'm kinda, I kind of see why. He, he's really a legend, man. There you go. No one can say that we don't give kickers love on this show now. We just yes. did a whole, whole Q&A with them there. So beautiful. <laughs> Cody, well, we appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. For those that are listening that want to either tune into your podcast or connect with you on social media, where are the best places to find you these days? Yes. Um, so from the podcast angle, you can find me on, on YouTube at Bring the Juice. You just type in Colts Podcast. We're there. Um, same deal with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the places you really listen to podcasts, we're on. You can just type in Bring the Juice, we're there. Uh, as far as social media goes, you can find personally myself on Twitter and Facebook. I'm more active on Twitter at CPFelger55, so you can find me there. I, I'm normally pretty active in terms of tweeting about the team and staying up to date with those things. And then the podcast at BTJ Pod on really everywhere, um, social media-wise, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page as well. So, yeah, those are kind of the places that you can find the podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, man. I, I love the opportunity to do that and really be able to cover the team that I'm really passionate about. So very blessed and grateful for that opportunity. Absolutely. Well, let's knock on wood here that all the injuries for the Colts are behind them and you guys will have a relatively healthy season ahead of you. But uh, exciting times. NFL, meaningful NFL football games are just around the corner. Ooh. Yes, it's about time. <laughs> All right. So before we get to our interview with John, I want to remind everyone, if you haven't already, be sure to head over to mybookie.ag or better yet, head over to dinespressbox.com. Click on any of the banners we've got up there. It'll take you over to their website with pre-populated codes. And whenever you're making your first deposit, whether it's a top up, first deposit, account creation, whatever the case might be, make sure you use the promo code DINESPORTS, D-Y-N-E-S, sports with an S at the end of it, so that they know who sent you. So if you are following along with us last week, our three-team parlay hit, so we are going to hopefully keep the momentum going this week. 
We are going to go to the world of MLB. And I mean, hasn't been a whole lot to wager on over the last couple of weeks. It's been MLB or bust, or unless you really want to get into some preseason NFL wagers there, not a whole lot to speak of. We never seem to be doing any of our recordings on CFL game nights either. So can't even get into that. So let's go to MLB. We are going to take the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim to beat the Baltimore Orioles. So the Angels money line, Shohei Otani on the mound for them. Then we're going to parlay that with a little WNBA action. We're going to take the Phoenix Mercury to defeat the New York Liberty. So two teams there. We're taking the Phoenix Mercury. We're taking the Angels tonight to win two-team parlay. Make sure you get all your bets in at my bookie. Friendliest lines on the internet. Must be 18 years of age or older. Please gamble responsibly. Now let's get to our interview with John Hame. Joining us today, we have author, human performance coach, and president of New Edge Performance, John Haim. John, how are you doing today, sir? Kyle, I am doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Sun is shining out there, so that's got to count Love for it. something, right? It's hot, Kyle. What's going on in Canada these days? Is global warming, or what is it? Well, this heat wave there, it's making me very thankful that I have a pool. Let's just put it that way. My daughter's in there about two or three times a day at this point. So she's going to be more fish than human by the time uh, the summer wraps up. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm envious of people who have pools. And I'm certainly uh, grateful that we have air. But I also feel bad for people who may not have air. This has got to be uh, some people, I'm sure, suffering, which is, uh, which is not great in this weather. Obviously, heat waves aside here, let's talk a little bit about what you do and the reason we brought you on, because you've got a very interesting profession. I think a very basic point that bears exploring a little bit is people understand personal trainers, what a strength and conditioning coach is, because they can physically see people throwing weights around and doing setups and all of that. When they hear the term, though, human performance coach or sports psychologist or anything like that, they gets a little bit gray. So like, what does a typical session with you and a client even look like? Well, first of all, let's back up just a fraction here. So when you have, uh, and let me sort of uptake on a few of the things you said there. So in a, in a human performance model, there's basically four key areas. Some people add more to it, but I look at it as a, as a sort of a four, a four pronged approach. So you have the technical part and that's what you're talking about when you're throwing weights around and that sort of thing. Then you have the physical part and that could be sort of the same thing, uh, throwing the weights around in the gym, the, the building of the physical muscles. And then there's usually the strategic, sometimes the tactical piece where you, you need to understand what you're doing as from a performance perspective. So if you're playing hockey, you understand the game, you know where to be at what times and those sorts of things. So there's those three pieces that are really important. Then you have this piece sort of, uh, you could put it at the top, you could put it at the bottom, you could put it wherever you want, but it's the mental and the emotional piece. And it's a driver of the other pieces. Now, is it more important than the others? I would say, no, it's not more important than the others. I think they're all equally important. So we give them all 25%. If you're not technically proficient, you're going to struggle. If you're not physically proficient, you're going to struggle. If you don't understand what you're doing or understand the game per se, you're going to struggle. But there's this mental and emotional piece that drives the other pieces. And every single professional athlete, certainly, that you talk to will tell you how important it is. Many will use, and it's arbitrary, right? A number. So it could be, is it 
Is it uh, 90% of the game? Is it once you get to a certain level, is it 90%? Is it 75? Is it 50? They'll use all sorts of numbers, but I will tell you that that number is quite high. Mm -hmm. So, but if you do ask the people who are at the top of the sports or who are playing at an elite level, they will tell you how important the mental and emotional piece is because ultimately it will become the separator. When people first start playing a sport, um, the mental and the emotional part probably isn't as important because you need to have some technical and physical and strategic proficiency, right? To get to a certain level and actually even do it. A golfer, if you don't have any technical skill, you can't hit the balls. So the mental and the emotional piece is probably not quite as important, but it becomes more important as you go. So, and you're completely right, Kyle. The part of the problem is why people don't work on it. And every single, trust me on this, every single athlete needs to work on this. It's, it's basically building skills. It's developing yourself as an athlete. It's super important to develop those skills because like I said, as you move up, you have to have those skills and be able to have the, the knowledge of how to apply them to, to what you're doing. So you're right. You can't see it. And most athletes have no idea of how to develop the skills too. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem too, is that an athlete, when they feel like they have to work on this, they feel like sometimes there's something wrong with them, which is way, way wrong because it's a skill. It's not clinical psychology. This is building skills to elevate your performance and maximize your abilities. That's what it's all about. And there's a way to do it. So we've spent, I mean, I started in corporate many years ago. And because I played professional sports myself, I trend, uh, I transferred into, or I, I guess I transitioned into doing both. And we even work in entertainment now too, because entertainers uh, have performance, need performance skills. So I get my background from playing a professional sport. When I was younger, I played professional golf and then I transitioned into coaching executives up to the CEO level. And then we transitioned back a little bit because of what we're learning in, in, uh, in corporate, uh, how to elevate the performance of the CEO, the executives, sales managers, everybody in the organization really, really helped us understand how to elevate the performance of, uh, of athletes. Yeah. So that's sort of how I started into it. Like, and it's, it's all customized too. Like you're mentioning, like, what do you do with an athlete? Well, it's all customized based on what they need. And we always start with, and we're probably getting into other questions here, but I'll just, I'll just talk about it a little bit. Mine as well, right? <laughs> um, it's, it really is all about, uh, it becomes all about at the very base, at the very foundation. If you're building the house, it's the foundation. Uh, a lot of it is about under, the athlete understanding themselves. It's about self-awareness. It's about self-discovery. And if an athlete can understand you know, their strengths and their limitations and their triggers and what their emotional makeup and many other pieces, their purpose, their values, all these pieces that we structure and we build, we help build uh, with athletes, then that's the starting point. From there, you can build other things, confidence, resilience, focus, all these things you typically hear about around mental and emotional or building these mental and emotional muscles. 
So the book I just wrote actually is on confidence. And I find that confidence is a big deal. Like there's a lot of pieces attached to it. The pressures, you know, the comfort zone, fear, all these things are attached to confidence. So that's why I wrote the book, uh, the, the latest book. Um, so, but, you know, to answer your question, super simply, every athlete is different and we work on different things with all of them, but they all work within a basic structure and we start sort of in the same place with all of them, building the self-discovery piece, building the self-awareness piece. Once you have that, then there's opportunity to move forward and build these other pieces and build these other skills. So sorry for the long answer, but, uh, uh, and some of my answers might be long because I'll, 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 uh, I'll keep moving forward into other questions, but, uh, that's basically it. It's fascinating, Kyle. The mental and the emotional piece is really fascinating because you can't see it. Um, and it can make much, such a massive difference. Like I just posted an Instagram thing today and one of the, uh, one of the top writers in the country is reading the book and came back to me and said, this is making a massive difference. Like she's a great writer already. She has the technical skills. She has the physical skills. She understands the sport. But now she's sort of starting and touching on the mental and emotional thing and saying, wow, it's elevating the other pieces too and elevating my writing. So all that being said, it's important to, to, for people out there listening, if you have a young athlete, it's really important you get on this and develop the skills. Lots to unpack with that answer there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Deep dive a few points that you brought up there in a bit more detail. But I mean, one of the ones that you did mention, though, was a bit of a hesitancy for some athletes to even address the mental side of the game. Like they think that there's something wrong with them and they think they're going to be, you know, lying on a psychologist couch or something. Right. No, that's not it. Yeah. What, what are all the harms from your childhood that will deep dive? And so, and that's not it at all. But if we look at it from just sort of a macro perspective, obviously there's been huge advances in the last 10 to 20 years of sports psychology and performance and all of that, but it, we're still really just scratching the surface. So when you are working with an athlete, like where do you think that hesitancy stems from? And, and what are some of the main hurdles you need to maybe overcome when you are just getting to know a new client or a new athlete that yeah. you need to address before you can start even getting to the mental sides of the game there? Well, yeah, that's why communication, like when if I hire somebody, for example, to work in our company, communication is massive. You have to be able to connect with the person and the individual. That might be the number one thing. And you have to establish the trust. Obviously, they 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 expect you to know what you're doing, but it's really important that you connect with them in, in that trust factor. Now, the problem, part of the problem, like you were talking about, is there's a stigma around psychology. You don't usually go to a psychologist if things are going well, do you? <laughs> so there's a stigma around that. So I try to distance myself from that certainly a little bit and, and focus on the performance piece. So the human performance piece, because ultimately... When somebody comes to me, whether it's, a, whether it's a young athlete, whether it's a professional athlete, whether it's the parents and the athlete, they want to improve performance. They want to get to the next level. They want to get that scholarship. They want to get to the pros. They want to just maximize their abilities. So we try to stay away. So there's a bit of a stigma, like you said, around that 
you know, saying that, oh my God, John, I'm going to see John. There must be something really wrong with me, but there's nothing wrong with you because we're building skills. That's what we're doing. We're building skills. Like you're building your, you get on the ice and you're like, if it's hockey, you're building your skating skills and your shooting skills. You're building all those skills all the time. Mm -hmm. So think about that. If you're not building one of the pieces of the performance model, which is we're calling it the fourth piece or the first piece, whatever you want to call it. You need to build all of them and you need to work at it. You can't just build the technical skills and the physical skills and the strategic skills, leave the other one alone. At some point, you're probably going to run out of road and need help to build those skills. That's why I'm always encouraging Kyle people to do it early. Like just build, put that in as part of your performance model, build it in, gain some skills. You need tons of skills. Uh, probably not, but you need the basics. And then you can kind of maybe find your way a little bit in my job. What I try to do, Kyle, is I try to, if an athlete, let's say they work with me for a year, a pro athlete works with me for a year. We have a program we put the athlete through building all the skills. And then it's my job to make them independent so that they don't need me anymore. Mm -hmm. So that when they do run into problems, then they can help themselves and they can fix it themselves and they know what to do because they know themselves so well. So that's always my ambition is to create an independent, confident athlete and with great skills so that they can support themselves and they understand all the pieces that are important. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I do. Yeah. And you just touched on an interesting point there too, because I mean, as everyone knows, the earlier you can start building these skills, the better, but I'm just curious in your experience, is there sort of a sweet spot in terms of age where the athlete is able to grasp the concepts and actually implement them themselves? And, you know, is it like 16 years old? Like when should parents really start thinking about, all right, we got to get Timmy or Susie involved in the mental side of things because they're now yeah. at an age where they can implement what John is talking about in those sessions themselves. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Well, we have just, just uh, to simply answer that question. We have this online program that a lot of athletes use uh, a lot of high school athletes and that sort of thing. And uh, it's 12 weeks. It's an introduction to the mental and the emotional piece. Okay. Why should I do this? Here's what it's all about. And here's 10 modules of little pieces that are, will be important to you moving forward. So it's a good intro. And I always recommend that parents uh, buy the program for athletes over, I would say about 13 is a good, but it's hard sometimes because you have some 12 year olds that are really mature. Yeah. Like often, often the female athletes mature uh, more quickly than the than the boys. The boys are well, not just athletes. I think it's oh. women in general mature <laughs> quicker. I, I, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And the boys are distracted sometimes. That uh, it's hard at that age, and it's hard to pay attention and that sort of thing. So I would say, uh, and sometimes it's up to the athlete too. Some mm -hmm. kids are really driven, and they say, "I want this." They could be twelve or thirteen or fourteen. And others, you're, oh, I'm not sure about this. And so I, I would say probably 13, like 14 is a good time to start, to start really embedding the, the ideas and the skills. Um, anything before that is a little difficult. You just, I, like people ask me, well, what, do, what should I do before that? Well, just make sure that, the, that it's fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> that it's fun and there's no pressure and they're doing it because they love it because that's why you introduce them to the, to the sport or the game in the first place is because it's fun 
and it's something they love to do, right? It's not work. It's, it's a passion. So just make sure it's always fun. Then when they get into the, maybe a little bit more competition, it becomes a little bit more competitive. Then you might start looking at, okay, let's build some skills. And Kyle, come on, what an unbelievable, I just wrote an article uh, for an equestrian magazine the other day, and what an unbelievable opportunity to develop these skills, because these are a lot of the similar skills I work with, with executives mm -hmm. like this, this is, and so you can, you can have an, an athlete who's highly interested in a sport and, and get them to build these skills around their passion, which is sport. And it's not even like work or education. It's like, okay, John's going to give you a couple little things to work on here. Um, and they integrate it into this fun environment and their passion and what could be better than that? I mean, you get the skills early and now you have them when you get to these levels where you actually need them. So the yeah. Classic teach them without them realizing they're being taught. Hey, exactly. <laughs> I love it with a bit of sugar, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you work with athletes across a wide variety of sports, but just in general, like, do you find athletes who come from, let's say, an individual sport like a golf, like a tennis, where you are the only person out there and you are solely in control of the outcome of your result yep. and benefit from the mental side of training a little bit more than, say, you know, a, a team sport athlete where you are one of 53 people on an NFL roster? Like, is there a difference in how you tailor fit those approaches? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but you know what? Uh, now, certainly in the professional sports, there's a lot of coaching around the mental and the emotional piece in the team environment. So, but not so much, obviously, in the, in the other environment, you have to hire somebody to help you in the individual environment. But from a perspective of skills and from a perspective of things like self-awareness, uh, self-confidence, focus, resilience, you need them equally in every sport. In a team environment, you're, you're an individual. You're just playing a role in a sport, on a, on a team. So, but you still need the skills equally as, as much as the golfer would or the tennis player would or the equestrian would or the squash player would. Um, so... In, in, you know, an answering your question, what's more important, it's equally important in both. And you have other things to deal with, too, on a team. You have the social pieces, too, which, which we kind of get into. Whereas in the individual sports, you don't have as much as that. So when you look at a model sort of, of emotions or being smart about your emotions, emotional intelligence, um, there's the social thing these social pieces too that you have to pay attention to when you're in a team environment where you don't have to really pay as much attention to them um, in the individual environment so yeah, yeah trust me it's equally important in both you need the skills in both for sure to to uh you know be able to adapt to the challenges that the sport presents to you and obviously a huge sporting event just wrapped up there. We had the Olympics, the Paralympics are going on right now, but athletes at that level of sport are really creatures of habit from their pregame yep. meal to the routine, to how they get to the arena and what time they're showing up for warmups, like all of that. Now talk about a curveball of all curveballs getting thrown their way here. Limitations on who could even come over. Some events had fans, some were closed events. So really throwing them out of their comfort zone. Like if you were coaching, let's say an Olympian who had their big event, something they've been training their entire life to get up to this point said, Hey, John, like 
I don't know what's going on here. Like all the things I normally do are out of whack. Like, what are some things that you would be telling them to really focus on? And you think that maybe some of the Olympians we did see perform really well at the latest Olympics in Tokyo, maybe took advantage of that their competitors didn't. It's always in sport. Uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> that's a very complicated question. That's another podcast almost, right? We could go on and on about that because to unpack that question, there's a lot of pieces to that question. But, you know, it has been, first of all, it has been very difficult because there has been many, so many curves thrown at the athletes and it's been very unusual. They haven't been able to train as much. So those lead to little issues too around confidence because training is connected to confidence. How much you train, how well you train is directly connected to your confidence. So that, that's a thing. That's another, that one's another podcast too. That particular one I just mentioned. <laughs> um, but obviously when you're, when you're doing anything in performance, you're always trying to focus on the process of doing it yourself and the process of doing it and your training. So you're trying to maximize your training. Now athletes go over there and they have to know, you know, what they're going to do, what the plan is and what they're capable of. If you're a runner, for example, who, you know, has never finished better than 10th in a world event and your training has been good and your record time would be 10th in the world, having expectations that you're going to go to the Olympics and win a medal is a little out of the question. It's not going to happen, probably, unless you get uh, an engine motor pack on your back or something like that, right? So... So you have to be uh, real with some, some stretch in that when you go to the Olympics. So you know what you're trying to do. You go there. It's all about you. It's all about your process. It's all about your training. Um, and then, you know, because we've worked with them on the foundational pieces, we ground them in their values and their purpose, why they're doing it. So we always pull them back to that, to why are you even running? Like, why do you run? And then really ground yourself and focus on that versus the, versus the many, many distractions that there could be around the Olympics. Definitely, I had some athletes call me prior to the Olympics, and it is nerve-wracking. But when you can kind of pull them back into the structure and into the purpose and into their values, what's important to them, and then get them only focusing on, okay, why are you there? Well, you're there to enjoy the bloody thing, first of all, because you just spent four years trying to get there. So let's enjoy it a little bit, enjoy the experience, and then focus on, certainly, it's always focusing on your own process of how you do things, your own routines, like you talked about habits, everything's about habits. So you focus on your own habits, what you do every day. You don't, this is getting back to the whole 10th place and medals and all that. You don't have to do anything special. Like go over there and do what you do every day. And that's why you're there. You were chosen to go to the Olympics because you met certain standards. So go over there and do what you do every day and uh, try to enjoy the experience as best you can. And then if you have panic attacks, call me, right? <laughs> and we'll ground you in your purpose and your values and we'll create some perspective around it and bring you back to where you need to be to maximize your abilities. But it's all about the athlete getting there being fairly relaxed, being confident, and then just maximizing their abilities. And, and, you know, the idea always is the personal best. Like they talk about that in the Olympics. The idea is always trying to extend yourself into the personal best. And that's typically, 
you know, the most you can possibly do. Now, if you're world-class and, and trust me on this too, Kyle, like a lot of the athletes in the Olympics, like at the top levels are untouchable. Like they have genetic, they have these genetics and they're, you, you just, it's, it's, it's incredible. Like the levels they're at. So, um, to try to reach those levels sometimes is, is not realistic for some athletes. If they go to the Olympics and finish 10th, that's amazing. Like, mm-hmm. think about that. You're the 10th best in the world at what you do. Like that's, right. that's amazing. But when you put it in the microscope of the Olympics, Oh my God, he finished 10th. Um, he didn't win a medal, you know, but they finished, they're the 10th best in the world at what they do and their physical capabilities and all these capabilities are, are put them in a position to be at that level, which is 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are, you know, first, second, third in the Olympics are, you know, almost freakish, like uh, they have freakish physical skills. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so it, it's all about just you know, like doing what you do. I've written about this lately uh, a lot during the Olympics and before the Olympics is you don't have to do anything special. You're good enough. Like you're, so just go get relaxed and do the best you possibly can uh, the day of the event or in the heats or whatever it is. And then, and then try to extend just past where you're going in training, which is a personal best. So that's always the goal to just try to do that. A word that has come up time and time again throughout this interview here has been confidence. Now, not to try and boil the entire field of sports psychology down to one thing. But it's important. It's important. It's it's like your bulletproof vest, right? If you're confident and you know you can do it, that's a a really good attitude. Uh, Absolutely. So I think it's really important. Most common thing that most athletes struggle with in your experience there, or is it something else that we maybe haven't even talked about? Like what's the most common thing that an athlete who is seeking out your services is looking to improve upon? Uh, There's a lot of things, but I would say though, uh, you know, let's say an athlete calls me, a pro athlete calls me or a parent and a parent calls me Mm -hmm. and, or the parent and the athlete call me like jointly. I would say probably just in the first few minutes of the conversation, the word confidence comes up. Mm -hmm. So you'll always hear, I need more confidence. I'm not confident. I'd like to be more confident. Uh, I don't really know how to be more confident. So my confidence is gone. I hear that too. I don't have any confidence. So (laughs) yes, well, that's not good if you get that. Um, and that's primarily, that's primarily, uh, based in, in psychological challenges. So, um, that's a problem. Do you have the yips? Is that why you're asking? No, but uh, I mean, if you see me out on the golf course from time to time, you would think that I might. So (laughs) all of a sudden a snap hook will, uh, pop up out of nowhere, but, uh, thankfully I I managed to keep it under control most of the time. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Um, so anyway, yeah, in talking to the athletes and talking to the parents, I would say that that word comes up a lot. So we have to be prepared to address that. And I just wrote the book on confidence for equestrian athletes. I found that literally I found working in equestrian the probably the last six to seven years, there's a confidence crisis. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people are not as confident as they need to be. And in that particular sport, it becomes doubly important because you're putting emotions into the horse too. And then you have two performers who aren't performing up to where they need to be. So, um, 
Yeah, I would say that confidence certainly is a big one. It's, it's knowing, right? If you boil confidence down into one word, it's knowing you can do it. Uh, when the time comes for you to do something, it's knowing, like deep in your heart, 100%. It's not a fake confidence. It's 100%. You know you can do it. And there's so much attached to that, too. And there's so many threats to the confidence, like, you know, fear and pressure and all these things that you can uh, talk about. And then you need to build it all the time. But you also need to have the foundational piece. Like if you, uh, for example, with confidence, if you don't know yourself, it's really difficult to believe in that. So if you don't know something, how do you believe in it? So that's where sort of the self-discovery and the self-awareness and those sorts of important pieces precede confidence. So you, you get up to speed on those things and then you have the opportunity to be confident. And then the training is important too. How do you train? Like you need a, pro a really, really good process to train. If you've got a soft sort of willy-nilly random process of training, then that will show up when you compete. So you really need a great process of training. That's one of the things we've sort of um, standardized is how to do the training relative to the mental, building the mental and the emotional muscles. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, the confidence, yes, it's, it's really key and you need a sort of a, a process to develop it and, and to be able to be aware of what the threats are to it too, right? There's always these things. And you talked about in the Olympics, the distractions and the, the pressure and, uh, you know, understanding the differences between kind of good and bad pressure. And there's good pressure too. Like if you can really consume pressure in the right way, you can, you can maximize it and elevate yourself to these personal bests we're talking about. But if you're allowing the pressure to really erode you and erode your skills um, because they're, it's bad pressure, then yeah, that's, that's a problem. So things like that to understand that. And this is all about the mental and the emotional piece, understanding these things. And most people, I don't think, really understand how to get to you know, a really, really super confident level and maintain it. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. It shouldn't, be, it shouldn't come and go. It should be relatively stable and you should be, you know, sort of always proactively confident. So, um, so yeah, it's a good question you're asking. It, the, the confidence piece is, is quite important. Yeah. And, and something that you've, again, brought up and wrote a whole book on it. So we're not going to get the entire answer right here. So no, that's more podcasts. Exactly. So for those who want the more in-depth answer there, go out and buy the book. But you just mentioned like equestrian is such a unique realm because in just about every other sport, you're dealing with humans. Whereas with this, you've got a human and an animal and an animal who you cannot communicate with and really coach up or feel, Oh, is the horse confident today? Like you can't tell you these things. So what did you find really were some of the key differences in dealing with equestrian as a sport versus a hockey player, baseball player, whatever, because of the animal factor there? Like how do you even begin yeah. to navigate that? <laughs> it's, it's sort of like when you break it down, it's sort of the same thing. It means that, the, the athlete has to be good. The rider has to be good. But the rider has to be good for the reason that uh, they're on an animal. The animal, it's incredible how sensitive horses are. They're a herd animal. So they, when a fly lands on them or any little noise or anything is around them, they pay attention to everything. 
-hmm. So they literally can sense and feel the emotions of the rider. So if you get on that horse and you're fearful, if you have anxiety, if you're hesitating, if you have doubt, if you have any of these things, the horse knows, the horse can feel it. So all of a sudden, those emotions sort of become part of the horse's performance too. So that's why it's so important to get it right as a rider. And that's so that's the reason why I got into this, into the equestrian piece, because I wanted to, number one, help the riders. And because being really good is so important in equestrian, and usually the horse gets all of the credit. It's like, but if you have, I would say, Kyle, if you have a really, really top equestrian, like a professional equestrian, it's 50-50. It's mm -hmm. 50 horse, 50 rider. So it's a real partnership. So the, the rider has to get it right. And the rider has to be really good too. The horse is really the primary athlete because the horse is going over the fences or the horse is doing the, the maneuvers in dressage or whatever the particular uh, uh, discipline of equestrian sport is. And there's many di uh, different disciplines, which was also fascinated me and uh, interested me coming from other sports. There, a lot of the sports are similar, but this sport was so different. It, it was a real challenge for me and a fascinating way to, to do something a little bit different and challenge myself. I took a few riding lessons, like to understand what the riders feel and I learned from the best in the business and asked a lot of questions and went to clinics and talked to coaches and followed people around and went to the best horse shows in the world and everything too. So I think that's the reason that the rider has to be so good emotionally mm -hmm. and uh, it's just a difficult sport. And now it's funny too. I mean, this is another podcast, but the social media aspect and the technology aspect and how it plays into the mental and the emotional sort of uh, construct of the rider is, is fascinating too. And how you have to get that part right, because social media can be really, it can be great, but it can be detrimental too. So you have to pay attention to that, but yeah, so that's, that, that's it with the, with the, uh, with the equestrians. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. And, I mean, you've worked in a variety of fields from, we've mentioned pro athletes to executives. Now, those are two sort of different things, but a lot of things overlap as well, too. But I'm just curious, in your experience, who accepts the feedback and the things that you're trying to teach a little bit better? Is it the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or is it the professional athlete? Because in both realms, there's a, a degree of ego, let's say, sort of involved with those positions inherently, right? Well, there's the communication and the trust too. So mm -hmm. if you do have a really trusting relationship with both of them, then there's the opportunity for them to listen to you and for, for, for you to listen to them too. The listening is always massive, right? Yeah. Being able to listen and have those skills. I mean, it's, it's, is it the biggest part of the business? Yeah, probably. It's the biggest, it's a massive part of everything. Being able to really, really actively listen to somebody and actually hear what they're saying so um yeah i would say both like the the definitely the the ceo is more complex or the the executive or the business piece is more complex mainly because there's more moving parts and there's more skills i would say required from from a perspective of the social skills and the leadership skills and all these skills that have to be built it's 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 more complicated it's more complex and 
you know, you could arguably say there's, there's more at stake too. You know, you've got, and there's so many more moving parts, like you've got the stakeholders and you've got the shareholders and you've got the board and you've got the employees and you've got customers and you've got all these pieces that are sort of in your mind that you have to kind of work around and, and figure out, uh, you know, what's best. So yeah, it's complicated. So I would say like, that's why my background in executive coaching and working in the corporate world was, was incredibly valuable to bring to sort of the sports world uh, because it's technical. It's very technical. It's, it's, it's more complicated. It's more complex. There's just so much more happening. And then you can bring that down. So when you work with a CEO, they're at the top of the food chain. Like these people are, have worked their way up and they're at the top of the food chain. And you got to be really, really good at that level because you're talking about culture and you're talking about, you know, the emotional climate of the organization, all these things that are critical that you have to get right because that's the way the machine really runs if you get those pieces right, especially the culture piece. So, you know, an athlete just typically has to worry about themselves and performing well themselves. I've got to go out today. I know what I have to do. I know I have, I know I have to get it done and this is what I'm going to do. But the CEO has to focus on so many more different pieces or the executive has to focus on so many more things. And you have to be aware of those things when you're coaching, you have to be aware of those things. And that's why both have to be really good. But the, the executive piece is more complex, certainly, than an athlete or a, an entertainer that we periodically work with, too. For sure. Lots of moving parts at the corporate level. And when yeah. you're watching sports, like, do you have like a sort of a weird sixth sense of like, uh oh, I, I feel like things are about to get you know sideways here. You can sense someone kind of unraveling there that someone might not be able to pick up like a, you know, Jean Vandeveld at the British Open or Atlanta in the Super Bowl, like. Do you get that sense a little bit earlier than some of your maybe friends or family members of uh, something yes. that <laughs> That's an interesting question. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. I think certainly you can read things through body language and you can see people, there's patterns too, right? You can see that <clears throat> the book I just wrote, Kyle, is called Ride Big. Mm-hmm. And the reason I called it Ride Big was because I was sitting with a bunch of pro equestrians at a table in Wellington, Florida. And during the winter the best equestrians in the world gravitate to Florida because there's what's called the Winter Equestrian Festival in Wellington, Florida. And uh, we're sitting around one night watching this big class. It's a, it was a big show jumping class. I think it was a five star. And then when the riders come in, we were talking a little bit about them. And one of the riders asked me, they said, what do you think of that rider? How that rider's riding? And I said, well, they're riding big. And then they asked me about another writer and I said, they're writing small. Mm-hmm. So you can see based on how they approach the course, the body language, uh, the risks they take, you know, if they're hesitating, you, there's many different aspects and pieces to it. You can kind of tell if they're confident or not in what they're doing and if they're trying to win or if they're trying not to lose, there's a major difference that, that you can typically see. And now after doing this for many years, I can typically see when a, when a rider comes in or when an athlete comes in, you're, you're, you can see if they're really trying to win and moving forward or trying not to lose and being a little bit cautious and a little bit less proactive. So anyway, <clears throat> anyways, that, that sort of answers your questions right there. The, the, the equestrian example sort of answers your questions. And that's why I called the book Ride Big, because it's a style 
-hmm. It's a style of competing. It's a style of, in this case, it's, it's a style of riding and it's a confidence style. That's what it is. It's all about the confidence and you're riding like, you know, you have a chance to win. So yeah. you're trying to do that. Right. So, so uh, yeah, definitely. So John Vandeveld, man, that was crazy. And, <laughs> and uh, this weekend was the women's uh, uh, open championship at Carnoustie. So a lot of people were talking about that actually on the 18th hole when Vandeveld had that uh, drive sail way off to the right into the burn. And then, you know, maybe made some bad decisions. It's hard to, it's always hard to second guess people, but it looked like he made a bad decision. But when he dropped the ball, he had a terrible lie. So, you know, could he get it over the burn or not? He, he didn't get it over the burn. He ended up, as you remember, probably knocking it into the burn for the second time. And ultimately, you know, didn't win the tournament, unfortunately for him, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. No hindsight's 2020, <laughs> right. It's easy to, uh, relitigate armchair quarterbacks. Exactly. Oh yeah. Armchair court. It's really easy from your living room, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So for those who want to get more information on either your business or the services you offer or pick up a copy of your book, like where are the best places to find you or get more information about your company? Yeah, probably, Kyle. And thanks for allowing me to do that. I really appreciate it. And thanks for doing what you do, too. This is a cool service you're providing for people, right? They're listening, they're, they're learning. So I think that's really cool what you're doing. The podcast format is really great. Um, from a perspective of finding me, uh, you can find me at just my name, John Haim, H-A-I-M-E dot com. So a lot of the things are there. Um, yeah, the books, I wrote two books, actually. I wrote the first book in 2010. It's called You Are a Contender. Um, and it was, it was uh, a popular book in the, the business, coaching, and it, it got into the sport community, too, a little bit, right? It's a book on, on self-awareness and a book on performance. So we wrote that one first. And then I wanted to write this book, you know, working in equestrian, working in the other sports, but working in equestrian to the last six or seven years, I wanted to write a book for them uh, because I didn't think there was a lot in the sport uh, in that area. So we wrote that book. It's called Ride Big and it can be found everywhere. I wrote it for a publisher in the U.S. called horseandriderbooks.com, but it's on Amazon and it's on all the, you know, chapters, Amazon, uh, all these different uh, areas. But uh, basically, you know, people can find me at the website. If they ever have a question or anything, yeah, ask me. Like, I, I love to interact with people. And if people want to know something, just go to the website, you know, click on contact or whatever and, and ask a question anytime. Beautiful. Well, John, we might have to have you back on for another future episode because there's so much more we can dive into. But we appreciate you taking the time. For those that are listening, go and check out the website and the books that he's got out there available today. Thank you, Kyle. And that'll do it for another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. As always, a huge thank you goes out to both of our guests today, Cody and John, for sitting down with us and talking all things Indianapolis Colts and the sports psychology side of athletics. Really insightful stuff from both of them there. As always, if you like what you heard, make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe, toss us a follow on any of our social media channels, all of them at Dine Sports. Check out our YouTube channel for behind the scenes content. And you can check out any of our 
our sister shows as well too we've got the dynasty league which is up and running they just ran through every single division in football all the main fantasy football positional groups as well too then we've got the front office podcast which is bringing you interviews and current affairs in the world of sports all the time as well so make sure to check those out across all your regular spots you find podcasts until next time folks have a great week we'll see you in a bit Thank you.